0: I want to turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. You might say, "Well, wow, we really jumped through Luke." But uh, we're we're approaching now that holy time of the year. Next uh, Sunday is uh, Palm Sunday, and then the two weeks from today is uh, the great day of all, Easter Sunday. And so, in preparation for that, we'll take a little break from our passage by passage look of Dr. Luke's Gospel, and we'll go right to to a sermon I've entitled, His Cross Became a Pulpit. That is, the cross of Jesus Christ became a pulpit. Luke's Gospel will begin at 23, verse 32, and then we'll look at some other section. You know, through the, through the years, it's been uh, my great privilege to, to enter in and to stand in some great pulpits uh, that God has used today and in days gone by. And for a minister of the gospel, I have to tell you, it's an extremely great joy for me to do that. A number of years ago, Faith and I had the uh, privilege of being over in London. I did a little preaching in in Liverpool, but while we were over there, uh, we made the trek uh, and went to to Charles Spurgeon's church. And uh, what uh, remains of it, they had had a fire there years ago, but they redid it. Uh, The auditorium is smaller, but... uh, it was my joy to go and stand in that pulpit that God had so significantly used for, for many, many years there in the 1800s there in, uh, in London. Some have called him the greatest uh, of uh, expositors or the greatest Baptist uh, preacher that has, uh, that has ever been. The boy pastor started when he was 18. He had such a boy face, they said, you better grow a beard, nobody will take you serious. And, uh, and he did. Charles Spurgeon in uh, his. And, and Calvin, when we were in Geneva at another time, it was my privilege to, to climb the stairway in, that, uh, in his pulpit there and to stand in uh, Calvin's pulpit. Wow. I was hoping to catch some of the electrical shock, and that would help me, and, uh, and so on. How about Moody's uh, in Chicago? When Jonathan studied at Moody Bible Institute and, and then to go to the, to, to the Moody Church for the, uh, the annual conferences and, and then at other times, but to actually go up there in the stand. I was able to do that, nobody was around in the stand in, in Moody's church and uh, in his pulpit. Wow, what a thrill. And then uh, at Shepherds Conference years ago, uh, early I, I got up there during one of the workshops and so I just got to stand in John MacArthur's pulpit. And maybe that'll maybe that'll rub off on me. What a what a, what a thrill that was! And then one more came to mind when I wrote this sermon was Jim Boyce. Dr. Boyce has been in heaven now for ten years, but there are Tenth Press in Philadelphia, Center City, uh, Philadelphia, doing a great work for the Lord in the Center City there at Tenth Press. Uh, that uh, that pulpit, incidentally, you should know when uh, very wisely. Because there, there tends to be a drift. Have you ever noticed that? A theological drift? One of my old professors, church history at Westminster, says it's, you can sum it up this way. Through the centuries and time, people tend to forget Jesus. They get together for basket weaving, I guess, and pep talks. But what Tenth did was, when they built this church, and it's an old historic church, uh, the tendency to forget the word, they said, we'll know what we'll do. They put a concrete pulpit foundation all the way down into the basement, all the way down into the foundation. It comes all the way up, up and it, it, it is the pul- You can't even move that concrete laden pulpit from the center of that worship place. Uh, it was, uh, well, well, we'll try this and we'll put the Bible on it. You know, that's what the Puritan said. All you need is a box and a book. That's all you need for church. The rest of it is just extra trimmings. A box in a book. And that's it, front and center. And they put it right there, and it's still there today, the pulpit with the Bible on it at 10th Press. Well, there's some great pulp. Well, as we move into the Easter season, as I mentioned, it's, again, needful for us to be reminded of the suffering that was suffered for you and for me, and the great resurrection. We live in Friday. Have you noticed We live in Friday, a day of death, a day of sadness, a day of suffering. Today is a day of Friday, but here's the good news. Sunday is coming. Sunday is coming. It is the great resurrection day, all because of the first fruits of the Lord Jesus Christ bodily rose from the grave as promised. Well, after Jesus was nailed to the cross, he spoke seven times, uh, it's sometimes called the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. You can look through, and we will spend our time in doing that. Seven times it's recorded in God's Word that Jesus spoke during that six-hour period of time. He was nailed to the cross on that day uh, on, on uh, at nine a.m. in the morning, and uh, and then at noon was the midway point. Remember, at noon the shroud of darkness fell. The father covered the the landscape with darkness as there his son hung between heaven and earth, was the sin substitute, the lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, was actually slain, bleeding and dying. And for the latter three hours, from noon until three, and then at three o'clock, he laid down his life." During that six-hour segment on the cross, it's recorded that Jesus spoke seven times. Hence, I've taken some literary uh, liberality and called His cross became a pulpit. Each of those sayings could be a sermon or a world in themselves. They just touch on so many wonderful things, as you can imagine. You know, there's something about the last words When daddy or mama or grandma or someone lay in the hospital or lay in their bedroom or lay dying, what was the last thing they said? What was it? Was it an expression of love? Was it a prayer? What was it? And those words are most cherished. Those final words are uh, incredibly precious, aren't they? And the church through the centuries has always embraced the final words of Jesus as some of the nuggets of gold that are so precious and so dear. And we're going to walk our way through that this week and next, as next Sunday's Palm Sunday, and then we'll have Easter Sunday, that first Sunday in April. Well, they're rich indeed. Each is rich in truth. His cross became a pulpit. One year we studied Isaiah 53, and I said, it, I feel like in preaching this that it ought to be like the burning bush, you know, where the Lord said to Moses, Take off your shoes, for the ground that you stand is holy ground. And, and now, as we're going to stand, as it were, and listen to our Lord on the cross, I feel like we ought to do the same. We ought to kick off our shoes because we're a creature and we're mortal and we're of dust, and be, rem- rem- be reminded of that as we consider the words of our Lord. This is holy ground for sure, holy. Well, there's seven words from his cross, his last pulpit, that should pierce our hearts and that ought to move us to worship him, the Lamb of God, the Beloved One, our sin substitute. For these final words of the Lord have great importance for us, Great importance. Wow. Well, the first is a word of forgiveness. A word of forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Now, they've just nailed him to the cross. They've driven the spikes through his hands and through his feet. They've raised him up. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let's read it in, in chapter 23 of Luke, verse 32. And following, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. In verse thirty-four, and Jesus said, "Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing." And they divided up his clothes by casting lot. And the people stood watching. The crowds were standing around the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, it's written in a sense where uh, it's imperfect, and he kept saying it. It wasn't a one and done. He said it over and over. Father, forgive them, for they know what, not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, they knew what they did, right? They knew they grabbed the nail. They drove it in. They knew what they were doing. They were Roman executioners, of course. They were masters of this barbaric uh, uh, way of executing criminals. The whole uh, crucifixion came from the, the outer world of civilization. The barbarians used it. The Romans and the Greeks adopted it uh, for the executing of their worst criminals, they're very worse. It was Roman law that if you were Roman, you could not even be executed. It was so horrible. It was a com- It was common for crucified victims, frenzied with pain, to shriek, to entreat, to even to spit at those that were around the cross and to curse the spectators, but not Jesus. Father, forgive them they know not what they do. They knew what they were doing in driving the nail. They knew what they were doing in crucify him. They yelled, crucify him. They knew they were putting him to death, but they didn't know the enormity of their actions. That's, that's what we shall see here. Well, A, Jesus wholly identified with us, his people. Holy identified. He became our representative on the cross Never before did Jesus ask the Father to forgive sin. You can check it out. Read through the Gospels. Never do you see the Lord saying, asking the Father to forgive sin. Why is that? Because he had all authority of the Father, and he forgave sin. He did. He forgave the sins of others. In Matthew 9, verse verse 2, we discover here up on the screen, and I think I have it on your sheet. No, I don't. 9-2. Do we have that, Jen? Okay, and we'll discover that, in fact, the Lord forgave sin, and that only God can forgive sin. You and I can forgive each other and release each other, but only God forgives sin. And you'll have to look that up, or we can look it up ourselves in Matthew 9, verse 2. There it is. There it appeared. All right. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. You see, there's one example of many in which the Lord himself forgave sin. He's the son of God, God verily, and only God can forgive sin. And so he forgave it during his public ministry. But now things have changed. He's still who he is, but now he's taking on the office of our representative. And he who knew no sin was being made sin, legal sin. He never ever committed sin, but he was made legal sin, the substitute for you and for me. And during that period of time on the cross, being our representative our sin, legally, he could not forgive sin. The only time that it's ever recorded that he asked the Father to forgive rather than he himself. He is no longer in the place of authority. He is now sin for us. And who can not forget that 2 Corinthians 5.21, Jen? Let's look at that. If we have that Second Corinthians 5.21... He who knew no sin was made sin. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was made legal sin, our representative, our sacrifice. And so he doesn't forgive sin himself. Father, forgive them. It shouldn't surprise us that the first word out of his mouth while he's on the cross is Father, Father, he's praying, and he begins. He began his ministry at, at his baptism there in the Jordan, praying when the dove descended, and now he is ending it in prayer. And the first word out of his mouth on the cross is Father, forgive them, for he knows not what they're doing. Now, what what does a holy man or woman do in the face of death? Uh, a man or woman who is godly. They do a final self-examination, and they ask, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me of this or that. Oh, Lord, in case I've forgotten anything that I haven't found release from you and covering. But what is Jesus? He never prays for himself that way. He never had sin, but he prays for those who put him on the cross. Well, forgiveness... I'm reminded in B, is man's greatest need. It's your greatest need. Did you know that? Your greatest need is not, I'm sorry to tell you, national health insurance. Boy, the way the media is uh, pulsating, you think like that's the greatest need we have. Your greatest need isn't to make more money. You say, well, I, I really could use a few more bucks. Well, that may be, and that may be in its place, and you may need health insurance, and that may be. That's not your greatest need. Your greatest need is to be forgiven of your sin. That's your greatest need. In essence Jesus was praying and I have on your sheet, "Father forgive them and condemn me." You see there was a price that needed to be paid. For he in this his holy righteous life, the second Adam, and his death were the only way that sin would ever be forgiven. So, Father, forgive them and condemn me. Kind of an ellipsis, if you think about it. And he would pay the price. You and I could never pay the price, ever. You know, when people die apart from Christ, and they don't know him, they're lost forever in a place called the lake of fire, hell. And it'll never be enough. They'll pay with what they're able to give. It'll never be enough. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Christ paid the only price. He's the only way of escape. Father, forgive them and condemn me. He became the bridge that provided our way of escape, the release and the forgiveness of our sins. Well, as I said, they were not ignorant, but no, they were ignorant, but not sinless. And ignorance is never excuse, is it? You ever get pulled over by an officer? I know that never happened to any of you. Oh, dear officer, I didn't know what the speed limit was. I thought it was eighty five. <laughs> we'll give you a double citation. No, ignorance is no excuse, is it? It's no excuse. No excuse. They killed the Lord of glory. Have you ever noticed Peter's second sermon in Acts uh, chapter 3, verses 15 and uh, 16 and 17? Look what Peter says there in Jerusalem after the Lord had ascended and the church was beginning. Look what he said. You killed the author of life. How about that for a sermon? Wow. But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. In 17, now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. Ignorant, uh, insofar as the enormity of the sin in killing the author of life. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They executed the Lord of glory, the Creator. How about that? If you had a hammer in your hand and nails, and and you were a professional soldier, an executioner, and how about that? If you grabbed the wrist and were driving it in, little realizing you were killing the God-man, the, the man of the Son of God, the Creator, the one who sustains all that is. I dare say you'd fall on your face. You wouldn't keep swinging the hammer. You wouldn't drive the nail in. What a horrible thing. Horrible. It was the worst tragedy that ever happened. Have you ever had tragedy in your life? From a human plane only. Have you ever been treated unjustly? That's not fair. I don't deserve that. I deserve better than that. You ever say that? Ever think that? Sure you have. I should have got the promotion. He should have been kind to me. She didn't speak kind to me. That's not fair. This is the greatest travesty that ever was. God comes into the world, sends his own son, and shows the the core corruptness of your heart and mind, our depravity. And What does man do to God who comes in love and only heals and teaches and blesses? He kills him. He kills him. Executes him. But in that, God has a redemptive plan. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, see, Jesus practiced what he preached. Would you believe that? Yeah, we hear that, practice what you preach. What, it normally <laughs> means we say one thing, but we don't quite live up to our standards, right? Jesus always practiced what he preached, always, always. And he loved his enemies, even as they killed him. In Matthew five forty four, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus uh, put it this way, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus always practiced what he preached, always. And he tells us to love our enemies as well. And in this, he fulfilled scripture. That Isaiah 53, I couldn't preach this without at least touching on it at least once. There, 700 years before the cross, Isaiah, writing by the Spirit of God, prophesies of this day. And he tells that Jesus would make intercession for the transgressors. As he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here is love triumphing over evil. We are to pray for our enemies too. He didn't curse them or spit on them or spit at them, but he prayed for them. And the Father heard his prayer. Can you ever imagine the Lord ever praying for something that wasn't within the will of the Father? Of course not. And I saw that. I saw that last week when I said it, the, Jesus said I could call uh, the, the legions of angels, and they'd been there, wouldn't they? And they would have ended that thing fast, but he didn't pray that way. And but he is praying, Father, forgive them, Father, forgive them. Then when you flip the pages. The Lord is resurrected and then had the ascension in the glory and uh, the church begins 10 days later in Pentecost, Acts 2, and you have thousands of people are saved, many of them that surrounded the cross, many of the folks that stood there and saw what was happening and many of them were saved. How many of you think it was the great persuasive power of, of Peter's preaching? Oh, that must have been something. Well, it must have been something, right? And the Spirit of God, of course. But I dare say to you, I think the great weight of the conversion was the Father answered the Son's prayer while he was on the cross. And many of them were saved, 3,000 in that day. Wouldn't that have been something to see that? 3,000 people repenting of sin and turning to Jesus What a great thing, the Lord answering his son's prayer. And many, in in Acts 6-7, many priests were included among believers. Well, they were saved, but not so much because of Peter's preaching. Well, forgiveness is the great debt that we owe. Sin is our problem, and Jesus became legal sin. It's a problem deep within, isn't it? One man writes of the, uh, the effects of sin within us, He tells the story of a famous preacher. Many years ago, there was a clock in the church, not like ours. That clock there works pretty good. I don't look at it too often, but it does work pretty good. And the clock there in that old church was known for its inability to keep time accurately. Sometimes it went too fast. Sometimes it went too slow. It resisted all attempts to solve the problem. Finally, after its dubious fame became well-spread, the preacher put a sign over the clock, and it read, Don't blame the hands. The trouble lies deeper. The same is true of us, isn't it? The real problem lies deeper. It's not so much in these. It's in our hearts. Because we're born in sin, and we sin, and God's solution was to send his own Son. Nail, have him nailed to the cross, and become sin for us. And there, our Lord and Savior's first words: "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." That was probably around nine o'clock on that that uh, that day. As you move, as the best we can tell, to maybe around eleven a.m. on that day, we see a second word of the cross—not only a word of forgiveness touching our greatest need, but a word of salvation. In verses uh, 42 through 43 of the same chapter of Luke, it's a word of salvation where Jesus turns and says to the penitent thief, there's a thief on one side and a thief on the other, and Jesus in the middle, and answers him by saying, today, and that's the emphasis, today you will be with me in paradise. Now let me quickly say before I forget he only said it to one, just the one, and not the other. Read the read the text in Luke twenty three, verse forty two, and following. And they gave him a piece of a uh, of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it. And there, wait, I better get the right. right I'm in chapter twenty three. That did not happen there. That was later after the resurrection twenty three forty two and and then he said, "Jesus, remember me that 's the thief when you come into your kingdom and Jesus answered him, "I tell you the truth today, today you will be with me in paradise. A word of salvation i'm reminded that uh, Jesus, while suffering, hears and answers." The plea of a penitent thief on his deathbed amid the, uh, the crowd. And the, I suppose there were some talking. The, the, the Bible records some of the things. He say, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He said he would uh, raise the temple in three days. All of this, the mocking and the scorning. And then there were the tears of some that were there that loved him and stood at a distance. And, and others and all of that. The mocking of the thieves and on the cross in the crowd. And the penitent thief, one small plea from this thief, cuts across all the, the noise of the crowd, and Jesus hears it. He's on his deathbed, so to speak. He's on the cross as well. Before his salvation, this penitent thief was no different than any, any of us no different certainly than the other thief that was nailed to the cross he mocked jesus just uh, as others and matthew 27:44 tells us just that that he mocked like all the others early on in his cross experience but like him each one of us must come to the end of ourselves must recognize that uh, Sin leads to death, and we're getting only that which we justly deserve. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ the Lord. Each of us must come to the end of ourselves and see our true condition, that we are hopeless. Hopeless. You say, well, I'm pretty good. That's the problem. You're not good enough. You have the goodness of God in you, but there's an evil bent that you got from your parents, from their parents, all the way back to our first parents. It's a corruption. All have sinned and come short. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ the Lord. He saw himself as hopeless. God opened his heart, and there was a change all by grace. All by grace. It was almost too late, but it was not too late. Almost the ticking of the clock for him came to an end, but not quite. And God saved this sinner nailed to the cross next to his son, this one who deserved death. This, this thief was dying, but not too, not too late. He was not even able to offer a life of service. He was not even able to undergo the waters of believer's baptism, was he? One little prayer, remember me. And in that, there's contrition. In that, there's faith. In that, shows newness of life. Remember me. One small cry of repentance is heard amid the talk of the crowd. Wow. Wow. And the Lord is so kind, isn't he? Sometimes we pray for things, and God has other things in mind. As we pray and pray, we pray for our loved ones, we pray for this and that. And, uh, and sometimes the Lord says, well, not yet, not yet. You're not ready. It's not yet. Sometimes the Lord says, okay. And then a lot of times I've discovered the Lord says, oh, no, I have so much more to give you than that little request that you're asking. And he just bestows such blessings on us. And here the thief is saying, remember me. Like, Lord, when you get to your kingdom, remember me. And the Lord answers with so much more than simply remembering. And what was his name down there? What was his name? Yeah, the guy on the cross, the penitent thief. No, the Lord says what? Today you will be with me. In paradise. There's a world of sermon right there. Isn't that great? Not just to be remembered, but he's going to accompany the Lord in paradise. Not in the future, but today. Paradise. Not purgatory. The Bible never teaches purgatory. But if it did, he certainly deserved purgatory. But today you will be with me. In paradise, in heaven, where you say, "Where's paradise?" Paradise is heaven. It's in, uh, called the third heaven. You check it out in 2 Corinthians. Paul talks about being caught up to the third heaven, paradise. He uses the words in parallel. In heaven, listen: to be absent from the body for a believer is to be present with the Lord. Uh, you you will not be more alive if you know Jesus. Then when you exhale, your last, and your heart stops, and you flatline. You know what that is? Uh, You know what that is. And if you know Jesus, you will be more alive than ever. Billy Graham said that one day, didn't he? He said, someday you're going to read that Billy Graham died. Don't you believe it for a moment. On that day, I'll be more alive than ever. Jesus said, today, today. No soul sleeping. You know, there in a, in not too many decades ago, that was very popular. This idea that your, your soul sleeps. You die and you sort of go into this slumber state, and someday you'll be awakened. Uh, that sounds good. I, I am tired at points, and a long sleep does sound nice, doesn't it? That's not what the Bible teaches. Absent from the body. Exodus. You exit. You are not your body. That's good news, too, isn't it? as our bodies crumble, and we don't quite have the strength and energy. I had something this week, a couple of days, that really made me lethargic. I sat down, (coughs) wait for Faithy and Sarah and the girls. They were coming back from Pittsburgh, and I put on the news, and I was just sitting on the sofa, and I wasn't feeling too good. And I normally have a a boundless energy, and I, I shook myself. Look, two hours later, I fell asleep sitting in the chair, So what's the matter with me? That wasn't soul sleep. That's not death for a believer. Absent from the body, present with the Lord, you'll be more alive than ever. And someday your body, if the Lord tarries in coming back, it'll be put back together, and you'll look better than ever, and you won't need a little dab of this and a little dab of that and a little brill brill cream, right, guys? Won't need any of that, and you're going to look better, smell better, and be better, and I won't even recognize you. I won't, and you're gonna look and you're gonna look a good sight for sore eyes, and you won't recognize me either because I won't have a sin nature either. Wouldn't it be great? Holy cow! I can hardly imagine it, but you know that's what the Bible teaches. And Paul said when he was under house arrest. Check it out in Philippians uh, chapter one, verse twenty-three. John, do we have that? Philippians one twenty-three. Look what he says about death. He said I could, I could, uh, I could die and go to heaven for me, living is Christ, and to die is gain. But uh, uh, to die uh, for a believer, and let me just translate its a superlative, is much better by far. How do you use three comparisons in a sentence to make the statement? For a believer, it's much better by far. Let's say that together. It's much better by far. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Oh my, what a wonderful relocation that is. Wow. Wow, we're just passing through, aren't we? We're just passing through this life. An old saint was once asked, would you like to live your life again? And he answered, no way, I'm too close to home. I like that. I like that. Our Savior has gone to prepare a place, but there are places for only those who make reservations. The dying thief made a reservation. You know how he did that. He didn't dial an eight hundred number. He said, "Remember me, remember me today. You will be with me in paradise." Do you have that? Do you have that assurance in your heart that you know Jesus? Do you? You must know the Lord. It is the only hope of men and women, boys and girls, whether young or old. As a pastor during these many years, it's been my sad privilege, though, to have funeral services for little babies, unborn babies, babies, teenagers, those in middle age and prime of life, and for older saints and older folks. Are you ready? There's no guarantee. You could step off the curb and get hit by a bus. Strange things happen. Make sure you're ready. Make sure you're ready. The thief was ready today. Wasn't that something? Is today the crowning day? Is day the day of the Lord's return? Is today the day I go to heaven? Wow. Well, look at C, and I have to say this. The Puritans wrote this, and I quoted, There's only one such case recorded of a deathbed conversion. That's this one but only one in Scripture that none might presume. God can save a person at the doorway of death, but don't you risk it. You fall down hit your head, you might not even know your name. you would be in bed the rest of your life. Don't risk it. I prayed and prayed all the years that God would save my father. It was a prayer of my life. Good man, but he knew nothing of Christ. He was spiritually dead. And uh, God finally answered that prayer uh, as He was in church that uh, December before Christmas in 1983. And there was a sinner's prayer that was offered at the end. Anyone who would like to be saved, uh, know Jesus as your Savior. Pray this prayer along with me, and pray out loud. I never heard of an invitation to trust Christ just that way. My family sitting near heard my father repeat those words. Little did he realize, at a young age, younger than I am now, that that Sunday night, the next Saturday morning, he'd be gone. And I once put his life on a clock and figured out if life were 24 hours, how late was the hour of my father's conversion. And it was in the very last seconds of his life, if you look at it that way. You might say, really, a deathbed conversion. Almost. And here's, and here's for medical science. He had just had a f- complete physical a couple weeks earlier, and he said, Eddie, you'll live forever. Well, that was prophetic, really, in a spiritual sense. But that's not what the physician, his doctor, meant by that. And, as he had a sudden heart attack and was gone the day before Christmas. Oh, If you don't know Christ, you must know Christ. And your loved ones that may not be here, and many of our friends are not here, and they don't know Christ. They must know Christ. They must know Him. He is the substitute. There's a man I've been witnessing to. He's a Jewish doctor. And uh, he was talking about baseball one day. He loves the Phillies and watched them play and on and on, and he watched uh, some of the old-timers, like Warren Spahn. I asked Dave if he knew Warren Spahn on Wednesday, and on and on. And then he was talking about one with being a great substitute hitter, and he's Jewish by background. And I said to him, I said, you know, that's the whole essence of the Christian faith. He said, oh, how's that? As we were in the locker room talking, I said, well, that uh, that's the role that Jesus played. Jesus is our substitute. That's why he died on the cross. He took my place. He died to make the only payment for sin as the substitute. And I looked at him and I said, uh, or he said without saying anything, he said, you know what? I never heard that before. I said, that is the essence of Christianity, the Lamb of God. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Second, today, not in the future, not we hope, we hope, we hope. Today, you will be with me in paradise, which is much better by far. And third, the final word from his cross that became a pulpit is this. It's a word of tender care. And we're going to have to move to John Because John records this in John 19, verse 25. Woman, your son. In John 19, verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, that's John the Beloved, Standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, John, Here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. If we're right, that the first word was around 9 a.m., Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And if we're right, that the next saying of the cross was around 11, today you will be with me in paradise, it is guessed, and I think it's fair to assume, that right around noon, before the darkness falls, and it will be his last words uh, to, uh, to men and women, He is going to speak this tender word of care about his mother Mary. Jesus takes care of his mother while he's hanging on the cross. He wasn't too busy uh, to do the great work of providing uh, our atonement. It is the great work. You know, work is a great thing, isn't it? God has given us something to do. Sometimes we're not too sure it is. You know, sometimes most of our work is mundane and routine. Sometimes we, in our mind, imagine, oh, I wish I was that person uh, that, and do what they do, or I wish they were, I were he or she, or boy, maybe that. You, you know, we do that because it must be exciting to have that kind of work. I got news for you. Most work is so routine and so regular that we're all in the same boat, but... Let's be thankful God has given us something to do. Imagine if you got up in the morning, you had nothing to do. I know some of you are thinking, in an instant, that would be that would be most wonderful. Okay, well, let's go out a few weeks. How about a few months? You'd be a disaster waiting to happen. You'd get in so much trouble. You would. Yeah, the devil tempts with idleness, but idleness tempts the devil. You and I need to be productive. God has made us that way, to be busy. And in our busyness routine, and in our works. And we all do a variety of of work. And, And the differences, I love it in the church family, your gifts and abilities and the things that you do in the home and outside the home, it's marvelous, really. But here he is doing the greatest of work, the work of atonement. There was no work greater than this, none. And he's not too busy in the midst of his suffering, in the hour of his greatest anguish and agony, to look down and to care for the future needs of his mother, Mary, the Blessed One. Joseph, from what we can tell, has died years earlier. We never see him in the Gospel. And Jesus was her firstborn son. And he is going to offer a tender word of care. For his mother, and I say to you, in this, there's a whole world of sermons involved. In his, this, the third word of the seven in his pulpit, in the Sermon from the Cross. Well, A, all the disciples have scattered. John came back to join his mother, all scattered, but his mother did not. She stood there with her sister at the cross, looking at uh, her son. Suffering as such, oh the pain, the pain of a mother to see a child, her child suffer. You know how often we have said that. You know, if someone is going to hurt someone in our family, let it be me, not my, my, not my children. In in the agony of that, to see children suffering, oh, it's almost too much. Stick your finger in my eye. Don't you dare stick it in my children's eye. I'm afraid of what I might do. You know? We know that. And here is the fulfillment in part of Simeon's word. Remember that? That he had said to Mary that it'll be like a sword thrusting through you. And now, 30-some years later, she was there seeing her beloved son, her perfect son. She never corrected him. He was perfect. Never sinned. She stood there watching the, the, the horror of what lay before her on the cross. The pain must have been enormous, enormous for her. She she stands there silently. Without weeping, not wanting to add to her son's anguish. As her oldest, Jesus had no assets to give to her. Here, mom, you can take the farm and support your no farm. Here you can take my tools. You can he had no assets. The Son of Man had no place to lay his head. Now it's something in our day and where we have different social systems and governmental things. Social Security and these kind of things to build in place for support. They did not have that, and her husband was gone. He had nothing to give her, nothing, nothing to bequeath. You know, we we write wills, and I give unto my children, and I bequeath unto. He had nothing, and she was completely dependent in her older years upon her children. And so we had no assets to give her. So he gave what? His beloved disciple to her. That's John. And her to him. The woman who loved him. His mother. His friend whom he loved the best. John the beloved. He, had, he, he connected with John closer, the young John, than he did any of the other disciples. And he gave them to each other according to the text. It's a word of tender care, I say to you. Church history and tradition tells us from that point, John took Mary home with him uh, in Jerusalem, and he, he didn't leave the city for 12 years until she died. He took her as his own, as if she were his own mother, and cared for her and provided for her every need. I remind you, indeed, that Mary is not the protectress of the church. There are some that have wrongly taught that. Rather, as we see here, she needed to be protected. She was the protectress of the church. Jesus would have given John to Jesus. Mary, take care of John. He needs it. No. It was the other way around. And, in fact, Mary also needed a Savior. Uh, she says that even in her wonderful Mary Magnificon, her song. And I have it in Luke one forty six and 7, where she sings of her need of a Savior too. Mary, the beloved, the blessed one, the one who is to be highly honored, but not made into a, a, uh, a, a divine or a Savior, Not at all. She was the blessed woman who would bear and raise the Christ child, the seed of the woman, and she was the woman of Genesis 3. Well, our Lord sets an example for us, doesn't he? In honoring our parents in E, remember the fifth commandment of the ten. Honor your father and your mother. It's the first commandment with promise. It means you're going to live, you'll have a tendency. The principle is if you do it, you'll live long years. You'll learn authority. Your parents will teach you boundaries. There are boundaries in life. If you go to the mall recently and see some of the kids running all over, you'd think there are no boundaries. There are boundaries. In what we say, what we think, what we do, how we conduct ourselves, in our attitudes, how we spend our money, all of it. There are boundaries in life. And parents are to instruct children. Okay, the word goes out, children honor your father and your mother, right? But parents are to demand that and follow up on that and encourage that. That's why I think God gave a little padding, a little extra padding on the behind side. And even soap works wonders. At least it did in me and my life. <laughs> Dial soap was one of my mother's favorite and not the liquid stuff. You can spit that out pretty quickly. And I learned like, mm, there's some things you don't say and uh, it didn't taste too good. But I got the message slowly. It worked its way in. My father and mother represent God in this house to me. And it was God's will for me to hear them. And I'm to honor them and not say things behind their back or under my breath if I didn't agree. And God heard that. What, what was that? He heard that. He saw that. And Jesus from the cross underscores in this message of tender care and caring for his mother, seeing her broken heart. He honored her. And we are to do the same thing. We are to honor our mother and our father. And incidentally, it goes beyond obedience. It embraces love and affection and gratitude and respect. And even some of you say, well, you don't know my old man. Or you don't know my mother. You don't, or I hardly know. Well, forgive them. Get past it. Maybe you're the bridge to the gospel to them. You know? Maybe it is. Maybe make a a phone call or write a letter. Take a trip and reconnect and build the bridge and honor them and honor them with your time. You know, uh, as they get older, they look for your calls. They think about you. They do, and they think about your children, if you have children there. And they have regrets. Of course, we all do. And they look for your time and your attention and your care and your honor and respect. They do. They really do. And here the Lord doing the greatest of all. He could have said, I'm too busy to care. I'm doing important stuff. Can't take time to speak to my mother here. Can't do that. He does. And in that, it reminds us how important that is to forgive and to build and to share and to love and to show the kind of childlike and even as adult, uh, to our adult parents, the respect that we ought to. Jesus also provided for her, didn't he? He provided John. No work or duty may excuse us from such care, nothing ever. I must say to you, though, Jesus doesn't call her mother. He does not call her mother, and I think I missed that part on the sheet here, didn't I? Yeah, look at C. He doesn't call, he calls her woman. I, I always learned the word, it's quite easy in Greek, it's the word guni. Goonie. You think of beautiful girl or beautiful women, you don't think of the word guni. It's the Greek word. It's <laughs> so stuck in my... Calls her a form of the word goonie. Goonie. It's a, it's a, it's a respectful word, uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a word calling her woman. Woman. Not mother. Well, why do you do that? He didn't want to bring additional shame to her. While he's being executed and the crowds are all there to shine the spotlight on her to say, that's my mother, he wouldn't do it. But more than that, and I think this is probably true, he was signaling to her, Mom, there's a change of relationship that will be forever changed. That you will no longer bear any more of a special relationship to me than any of those that are in my family. For who are my mothers and my fathers, my brothers and my sisters? They that do the will of God. And so he was signaling to her, that uh, that would be forever changed. Wow, a word, word of tender care. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Today, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Listen, if you live very long, you're going to be thinking about that. You will, if you have any thoughts at all floating through your mind, you'll be thinking, wow, today, today. Today, mm, the best is yet to come and to his mother he says your son he takes care of her takes care of her and where to do that somebody said we put the diapers on at the beginning and we teach our kids to return the favor at the other end and it sounds sort of gross but it means we're to teach our kids to take care we're to raise them right and invest ourselves And then if we should live that long, then there's a return. All right, what do we say by way of lessons for our life, and then we're done? Number one, if God is able to save this thief, and he does, remember me. Remember his words? He is able to save you today. Come to Jesus. Come to Christ and be saved today. In an instant, Lord Jesus, be merciful unto me. Or you can pray what the thief said and and come to understand what it means. I'm a sinner. I'm getting what I deserve or or I should. Remember me, and you'll be saved forever. Wow! Number two, second lesson for life. If God is uh, in, in your hour of death, this question will matter most: Are your sins covered by the blood of Christ? It's not. Boy, were you good, or did you do this, or did you do that in your life? Are your sins covered? Are they white as snow? Remember we sing that old hymn? Nothing but the power of the blood of Jesus. That's the thing. And don't leave your family hanging. Did he make it or didn't he make it? Live so for Christ that all people know that you're forgiven and redeemed. And yes, your sins are covered, and your heart is white as snow because of the blood of Christ. Number three, number three, remember, sin is your number one problem. It's not a pimple. It's not your checkbook. It's not your job. It's not whatever, you know, you may think at the moment your biggest problem in life. They may be issues in certain places. Your number one problem is sin. Is it atoned for God is holy and just, and we are not. Number one problem. Number four. For you as a Christian, absent from the body means to be at home with the Lord. Home. There's something beautiful about that, isn't there? Home with the Lord. Home. Home before dark. My mother used to say, get yourself home before the street lights turned on. When do I come? Get home before they're turned on. We learned how to kick them out. We used to give a good kick, and the, <laughs> they would go out. Yeah, if you gave a good kick, they would go out for about five minutes. You, you know what I'm talking about? Said, Mom, it wasn't. Get in here. You're in trouble. I saw it. <laughs> home, right? Absence from body, home with the Lord. Oh my, number five and last. Always honor. It's the word in the Greek, tomeo, means to prize. What does it mean to honor your parents? It means to prize them highly. Always honor your father and your mother. Love and care for them. Provide. Don't neglect them. And parents, it's up to you to train your children in this way. Train them this way. They're not your buddies. Some people act like their kids are their buddies, Okay. Raise them right, and when they're adults, and if God gives grace, you'll be very dear, very dear to them. Raise them as buddies, and you're going to have a hornet's nest. <laughs> Honor them, prize them. And if there's anything between you and your parents, parents and children, care for that. Don't let it go on day after day after day. Call them, write them, ask forgiveness, be humble. God loves that. Prize and bridge that gap. You never know, will be the last day. The day that uh, his cross became a pulpit there at Calvary. The day our Lord made atonement for your sin and mine. May God help us. <laughs>